this is your first call, Brandon. I welcome you. I'm glad that you're here. I appreciate you giving me the time. A, a lot of, in fact, not just a lot, but all of what the Buddhist teaching is, is the teaching of friendship. The whole show is nothing but friendship. But we don't know how to be friends with other people, not very well, because we don't know how to be friends with ourselves very well. So the first thing that we need to do is learn to be friends with the inside, and then we can learn to be friends with the whole world. But in a way, we have to get away from the world in order to do that. And when we come back, we don't come back into the world, we come back above the world. In the sense that Jesus even said it, uh, being in the world, but not of the world. Well, here, we're going to practice not even being in the world, we're just going to float above it. I, I heard a very similar thing in a book I was reading about Sikhism, actually, in the world, but above the world, essentially. Exactly, to come out of it, to let go. But <clears throat> in order to do that, we have to see the way that we're clinging. But there's more to it than that. Not only do we see the way that we are clinging, we have to let go of that particular clinging in this happening in that particular moment or mind moment. Let it go right now to practice letting go. This is what the whole teaching really is all about is to see something and drop it. Just like if you put your hand on this, uh, you leaned against um, the counter in your house and it happened not to be the counter. It was the hot stove turned on and you, you let put it your elbow on it. You're going to take your elbow off of that hot stove immediately, right? In fact, you don't even have to think about it. The elbow itself will come off that stove. The, deal, uh, the feeling of pain um, is quite remarkable like that. That, the, that uh, even a tender infant, if, it, if you put a hot coal on the foot or the hand of a tender infant, that tender infant will draw that hand back and then ball up in tears. Yeah. So this is the way that we have to begin to operate is, is that there is instincts in there. Those natural tendencies are very fast. <clears throat> and yet the way that we're taught to think is kind of slow. And so one of the things that we need to do is to pay attention well enough to see things that happen very, very fast in the mind. And this okay. is why we're practicing the way that we do is to begin to watch what's going on. But that watching what's going on is not enough. It's really not that in fact there's a missing ingredient in there. This part of the Buddhist path, the Eightfold Noble Path, but somehow or another, over time, <clears throat> some of the pieces of that. A puzzle, that giant jigsaw puzzle. You think of the Buddhist teaching as a jigsaw puzzle, but Western Buddhism is that same jigsaw puzzle with a few pieces gone. Okay. Now, there's another way of thinking about it, and thinking about it in this sense is that the teachings of the Buddha is like a precious gem, or let us say it's in fact three gems. The trilokana, or the three gems, are the uh, <clears throat> 
the three refugees, refuges, and that these very, very valuable gems are kept in a very, very ornate, beautiful box, but the box itself is a puzzle box. And okay. the name of that box, and by the way, the box is extraordinarily beautiful. It's extraordinarily ornate. It's very, very finely detailed. And the name of that box is Buddhism. And what is in the West is that box. And within that box is a puzzle. And within that puzzle is the prize. But the box itself is very ornate and it's satisfying for many people. So the ordinary teachings that you have are actually the same teachings that are in the, uh, the, the gems inside, except that the gems inside have to do with the quality of having those gems rather than hunting for them. Okay. All right, because we're out there all looking. And in fact, uh, uh, there's an old song that's very funny that way. The name of the song is Looking for Love in All the Wrong Places. Now, I think I've heard at least the name of the song, but I've probably heard it too. Well, I won't sing it to you right now. We'll just move on. <laughs> okay. But that's what we're doing. We're looking for love in all the wrong places and that the entire society is based on the premise that the love that we're looking for is in the society, which is the wrong place to look. The real issue is that it's inside, but uh, we have been using the inside as a garbage pit, and we have just taken all kinds of garbage out of society thinking that that was the gem. And that what we need to do is to do a major dump, a major getting rid of it, a major unloading. This is okay. what the real teachings is about, that uh, Buddhism doesn't, is not going to add anything to your life. Nothing. You're not going to get anything out of it. Sunyata, zip, zilch, nothing. You're not going to get anything out of it. But maybe if you're lucky, you're going to start losing a whole bunch of crap. Okay, I see. I see the difference there. And so uh, then that's... That's the issue is, is that Western people and therefore Western Buddhism is going out looking for the goal, looking for the prize, looking for uh, uh, a reason or a rationale or a, um, uh, a prize. Right. We're looking for something that we think is someplace else. But a better way of looking at it is, no, it's right here. All you have to do is just uncover it. And uncovering it means you've got to take a lot of the crap that we've been piling on. I've heard a lot of similar things said or in the whole non-dual sphere um, kind of okay. related to that. All right. So we can think of all of this crap that's piled on in two regards. One is, is that we can see that, um, that because we're human, we came out of a past. Uh, whether you believe in evolution or not is not the point. The point is, is that we have things coming out of the past and that humans would have never survived if they did not know what danger was. Yeah, and so course. we have instincts. 
And those instincts have been keeping us alive as a civilization for many centuries. But that that self-preservation instinct of staying alive and its language is the language of fear. Yeah. And that goes right back to whatever we were way back when. Back to dinosaur times, it was the same issue as survival. And so that winds up then being a major issue. Even when we have a life that is completely safe, we still see things that are safe as a survival issue because we're living our lives instinctively. So um, these instincts then greatly interfere. But we can think of that the the and we'll talk in detail about the instincts at a later time. But right now we can think of in the instincts as like a box that we have been carrying or actually using to put the garbage in. In other words, we have been operating instinctively and listening to the parents and other things around us when we were children and picking up what they've knowledge that they've got in their instinct box and then we're putting it into our instinct box and doing things instinctively. So an example of that would be the um, self-preservation instinct leads then to the nesting instinct. And the nesting instinct means that we want to herd together and in fact, society's glue is the human's nesting instinct. And the the issue of the uh, of the nest is, is that if you're going to be in this nest, you have to follow the rules of this nest. So our little individual child, when he is born and being raised in Western society, has this instinct. And then by the time of six or seven, he's told that he's got to go to school and learn to read. And the kid doesn't want to stop playing with his toys. He's having a lot of fun. But we're told, no, you have to go do what you're told to do. And we're threatened with uh, with punishment. We're threatened with um, uh, obliteration. We're threatened with uh, um, uh, being kicked out, ostracized, not wanted. Um, and so we go along to get along. We go do what we're told to do, but we resent it. Okay. And so resentment for authority is then something that we put into our little box of nesting instinct. See how that works. Okay. Yeah. That makes All sense. All right. Yeah. And we learn to resist authority because the, the authorities that are over me now resisted their authorities also. And so when we resist authorities, That means that we either go along to get along and have underlying resentment, or we're afraid to buck the rules because of the fear of punishment, or we're defiant and rebellious. But we make these various choices very early in life, and then we continue down the line of how are we going to deal with authority figures for the rest of our lives? Yeah, including am I going to be one of these authority figures? Yeah. All right. So that's that whole status symbol comes from the nesting instinct of um, this is my house. If you're going to live in my house, you have to follow my rules. 
And so this is what the alpha male in a wolf pack will be. He's the guy that sets the rules, which means he's going to growl at pups at night when they're in his nest. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's uh, and but the danger is is that to get either uh, rebelling against the nest, or worse still, by that rebellion getting kicked out of the nest, and now you're out in danger. The stragglers in a herd are the ones who get eaten. Yeah. And so the natural mentality of humans is the safest place is in the middle of the nest, in the middle of the herd. And if you're in the dead center of it, then you're the authority, and that's the safest place to be. Except for all of the other people who want to be authority figures, and now you're their target. And so it maybe is not the safest place, but the idea is, is that it's the safest place when in fact it's not. So what we need to do instead is practice feeling safe. Rather than having to operate on instincts. In other words, we're going to choose wisdom and seeing over the old programming of instincts. And when we live instinctively, that means we're living selfishly and we're trying to preserve the self. Rather than when we're living openly, then we can be altruistic and happy and easygoing because we're not in danger. Yeah. Now, in, in, in the Pali, the Pali word for this is what we call, uh, the word is abaya. Uh, baya is actually the word for fear. And abaya means not fear. Yeah. But uh, the translators then made that mistake and then called it fearlessness. But fearlessness in English language has a different connotation than what we're looking for. One who is fearless means he's a fearless warrior. He's ready to walk right into danger and, and have at it, right? But he's doing it from battle he's doing it from danger yeah we're not talking about being fearless in the in the face of danger in the sense of courage we're talking about it in the sense of feeling safe but in fact that warrior doesn't feel safe that's why he's built up that courage so he can walk right into battle and and do that battle because deep down inside he's afraid that's why there's a battle already anyway if he completely feels safe there's no battle going on so we have to get into the mind state that there's no battle going on. Because really, you're not. You're not at battle. Why do we go around feeling afraid, feeling fear, when there's nothing to be afraid of, be afraid of? Yeah, it's there's definitely a lot of neuroticism in the world today, and you know the West is definitely no exception to that. Today, yesterday, last year, a thousand years ago, yeah. two thousand years ago, and maybe in two thousand twenty-two. <laughs> Who knows what the future is going? Yeah, to be. yeah. But the trend so. is. <laughs> so yeah, I see. You see, people make a lot of um, potentially bad decisions when they're they're in those really hard survival situations. Because it's just really pressing and, you know, it's taxing on you. So if you can get to a place where, you know, mentally, spiritually, you feel safe, I can definitely see the value in that.
So what? How how do we go about getting closer to that then? Well, the answer is several things, but they all have to do with a package deal that is the entire teaching of the Buddha. That this ornate box that we were talking about that is Buddhism has a whole lot of fancy doodads on it to make it beautiful and enticing and lovely and uh, um, desirable that are not part of the teachings of the Buddha at all. That the Buddha's teaching is very simple. It's so simple it can come down to just a few words like dukkha, dukkha naroda. That's three words. And that means suffering or dukkha actually is better translated as dissatisfaction. I had heard you say that, yeah. Okay, that suffering is a very heavy duty word. Sounds to me when you hear real suffering, that sounds like nails and crosses and that kind of stuff. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then it makes people get the impression that, oh, if they do get somewhere here, then you should be able to <laughs> deal with suffering. They have the idea of, you know, no suffering or you're free from suffering in it. I don't know that that's not it just doesn't seem like that. when they but that's part of the grandiosity you see Western Buddhism is a very very ornate very grandiose box it's a puzzle box that they don't know how to open and so they add all of this grandiosity to it that's just one example of it uh, by using the word suffering, because suffering is a grandiose word. And we're just talking about simple dissatisfaction. Yeah. As opposed to simple satisfaction. That's the real essence of it is can you come to a point of being satisfied that you've got enough? That everything is okay, everything is fine, no place to go, nothing to do. No worries, no flurries, no fear, no sorrow, just everything's okay. Well, look at all of that stuff that we've talked about just removing. All you have to do is remove the sorrow, remove the sadness, remove the fear, remove this, that, and the other thing. And what we're left with is a nice, easygoing place. But we also have to remove the greed for getting something special out of it. But the Buddha does not take, teach heavens and hells, rebirth, spiritual powers, or any of that kind of stuff that's been added as doodads onto the box. Yeah. All I've, I've, heard, I've heard a lot of things like that in association with Buddhism so um, they really made me kind of question you know the the whole the system itself you know if they're claiming such things it just makes it it seem well yeah just overly religious and kind of archaic probably not you could go so you could go so far as not call that box Buddhism you could call it Buddhist religion that's the yeah. Buddhist religion in the West. The Buddhism in Thailand, the, the, in the Thai language, they use the word Buddha Sasana, 
And Vikka Buddha Das is quite fond of that word. And so I use that word differently without translating the word sasana into the word religion, because he does not know what a religion is. <laughs> mm -hmm. Not what, what's in the West, because he's never been to the West. About as far away from Chaya that he's ever been is Bangkok. I think he's been in, he's been actually to Burma, but that was in the 1950s. And he's been to India, but that was in the 1930s. Okay. So, so that was a long time ago. And so uh, the books, the stuff that he knows, and he's quite a fan of Christianity and, and uh, the Bible and stuff like that, finds a lot of wisdom in there. But he also understands that <clears throat> Christianity, like Buddhism, is the original deal with a couple of pieces gone. With a couple pieces of gone and a whole lot of exaggerations and a whole lot of exaggerations and translation mm -hmm. mistakes, probably, and a, a, a whole lot of stuff going on. But um, yeah, that's what I, I find too. I find a lot of value in Christianity, um, have had a lot of positive experiences with it and Christians. Um, so. It's always well, good when, to see when the different member to be like Jesus, then yeah. Christianity works when they remember what Paul said about Jesus and then take Jesus and put him up in the high shelf and do him, you do me, gobby, gobby, rah, rah, sis, boom, bah, kyrie, elastan, in excelsis deo. When they do that, that means that they've lost it. That's one of the missing pieces that Jesus and the teachings of Jesus is freedom in the sense of uh, the, the Beatitudes or the Sermon on the Mount and also things like why the lily of the fields don't aggrandize themselves. Why do the Jews of that time dress up in all their finery to go to the temple? And other things like uh, uh, the birds of uh, the foxes of the field and the birds have their nest, but the son of man has no place to rest his head. You also know that in many places, especially Matthew, he referred to himself as son of man in the reference of trying to take them out of the mentality of we're the chosen children of God and I'm a son of God, you know, but the Christians really just hung on to that whole concept that Jesus was trying to disrupt. Yeah. Is stop trying to make everything so damn special. <laughs> and yet we're looking for special. We're looking for special cars, Lamborghinis, Teslas, all kinds of special cars, right? Why well, have to have a special car? Because if I have a special car, then I'm special. And we are taught in the West to be special. We tell our little kids to be special. Oh, you're so special. Right? And so we grow up with the expectations, oh, I've got to be special and prove myself special. Yeah. You don't have to do that. You're already okay. But we're but we are piling on with this nesting instinct of all of these expectations of society. And when we come out of those expectations from society and recognize the second noble truth. Is, is that I myself am responsible for all of the problems, all the dissatisfactions and all the sufferings. And I do that by wanting things that I don't have and trying to get rid of things that I can't control 
and the stupidity to think that I'm powerful enough to do all of that. And so that's uh, like a that's the reverse serenity prayer. I think you just uh, used. On me. Are you aware? Um, it, it sounded like basically yes. Was, just, no, it is the serenity the, prayer, except that I, that uh, the. Uh, the God to grant me the wisdom to figure out which is which, but yeah. I just but I just did the serenity prayer, of recognizing that you're, that that's the self cause of suffering is the fact that we can't figure it out. Yeah, we don't know the difference between what we can do and what we can't do, or even what needs to be done. We think that I'll be okay if I get what I want. And then we go around being disappointed because I don't have what I want. But if I don't want anything, if I'm wise enough to not want anything, then I'm good to go. I'm fine. I'm good to stay, in fact, because I don't even have to go anywhere. <laughs> yeah. So this is the actual teachings of the Buddha that we cause our own problems. And that we do it moment by moment by moment. It's not a great big thing. It's not a big disaster. It's the fact that uh, it's not the car crash. It's the fact that we didn't see things coming. I had a student one time who says that, wow, we're really glad that I woke up because I could see that I had to swerve out of the way of that car to prevent from hitting it and, and piling on the brakes. And I says, oh, you waited that long to wake up? You could have seen that car in front of you long before. <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't have had to have had an emergency stop. You'd have been paying attention to the road. So if we are paying attention to our life all along, we won't have any crashes. So it's very much about a moment to moment. It is very much awareness a, and shift. A moment to moment of what's going on. Okay. And and then in fact that is so important that the Buddha actually gave himself a name that he used, and it was not Buddha. He was known also as Sakyamuni long before he was ever called Buddha. That the word Buddha is kind of a late age thing. Okay. That he was Sakyamuni to uh, King Asok. But the question is, is what did he refer to himself as? And the answer is the Tathagatha. Have you ever heard that word before? I've heard that word before. I, I didn't, when I heard it, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm watching this video or whatever. That word sounds important, but you know, I, I kept watching the video and then I forgot to look it up. What, what does it mean? Well, the word ta, 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 has the, the word of tatata uh, and the word uh, uh, go in it. The word tatata is the word that in old days they translated as thusness. And so that's the kind of word that it's got stuck into the English language. And that misses the point completely. But if you think of it instead of thusness as thisness, because thus is not even a word in our vocabulary, but when it is used correctly, it's like the uh, 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 
thus or that which was necessary to show and here it is this is it okay that's in fact what it really means this is it or this here or here now so uh ramdas uses the expression be here now and also eckhart tolle uses the, the phrase this present moment in fact i think that he's even got a book by the name of the power of this present moment yeah, the power of now. I've, I've the read power it. of now. All right. So this is what the Buddha is teaching, is the teaching of the one who goes into right now or go now, which means come out of the mind into the reality that we are, have right in front of us to be here rather than in the past. But normally when we're thinking in conceptualized thoughts, we're reconstructing old memories. When we're when we're writing an email, we're planning or constructing a future thing that we're not doing. Oftentimes people think about writing an email while they're not writing it. They go write it later. What they write is generally not what they were thinking they were going to write. Yeah. They write something else. So why think about writing the email? Why don't we just either don't write the email for a while and then write it as we were? Or as soon as we think about the email, we just write it then and get it over with. But no, we think and we think and we think and we write and we unwrite and we write again and all that. And we never do write that email for quite a while, days or so. <laughs> and we're worried and afraid the whole time with expectations. I've got a job to do. I've got to get it done. But that's just one example. How many things have you done that with in your life? Going to the bank. Oh, I mean, I, I, I was a big perfectionist. A lot of that's changed over time, uh, still to some degree. But um, especially with my writing, uh, I, I'll, I'll go back and edit. And oh, this doesn't sound just quite right. So let's, you know. Okay, well, Changes there's a new attitude thing. to take, and that is, is that you can see that writing not as writing and uh, correcting it and making small errors and whatnot. Think of it as a toy that you're playing with. Just play with it. Well, I don't really it. see it as a negative thing. I kind of enjoy perfecting the way that I'm trying to say That's it. That's what we're getting at, that you have that choice. A lot of writers would rather have writer's block than enjoy editing. Yeah, I, I like editing, um, but I don't really have writer's block. It's just like. Well, maybe you can write I, a, I like a to, course. You can start a whole new university of writing skills because that's. I mean. <laughs> I know what I, writer's block is. I'm I'm completely blocked, 100 <laughs> percent. <laughs> So anyway, back to what we were talking about, and that is, is that um, when we come out of our dissatisfactions, when we see what we're doing, we can change our mind and move out of the first and second noble truth into the third noble truth. And this is something that's not taught in Western Buddhism because nobody really recognizes everybody's kind of afraid of the third noble truth because they keep thinking they ain't got it. Where in fact, you can have it anytime you want it. 
-hmm. Anytime that you're not in dissatisfaction, you could be in satisfaction. And that's what the Buddha teaches is being free from dissatisfaction in this moment. Not permanently. Permanently is the way Westerners think. We're only interested. But it's a now. It's a moment to moment recognition and decision shift that I'm. As soon as I'm out of dissatisfaction, I can be be in that satisfaction, and that is ultimately the goal, more or less. It, is, well, it's since that. since it's instantly available, it's not a goal. Yeah. yeah, it's like there's a cup of coffee and you want to drink a uh, sip of coffee. You just take the get the cup doesn't become a goal for you. I mean, you're not <laughs> <laughs> the cup doesn't become a goal. <laughs> no, it's just there. It is. You just take it. That's funny. <laughs> I don't know what it's funny. That made me laugh more than I expected. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's uh, the the super mundane Dhamma working its wonders. <laughs> well, that's the whole point that we see things as a goal, which means we see something as in this particular moment in time. I don't have the goal. It's way off there someplace, which means I'm incomplete because I haven't got the goal right now. And so I'm actually in a state of dissatisfaction by having a goal. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but instead of making a stupid cliche like the goal is to have no goals because that's still a goal. Yeah, then you're just in koan territory. And, the, and, and, and you can start <laughs> chasing your tail with that one. In fact, there's a term for it's called desiring desirelessness. Oh, I've done that plenty of times. Mm -hmm. Right. I'm all, I've that, heard these things. I'm not, I'm not a stranger to them. Well, then the the thing that we need to do now is to be on guard to look for that stuff so that whenever it comes up, we can say, hey, I don't need that right now. And we can do that throughout the day, any day, any time of the day, we can make that choice. Am I either going to react to this and do the same things that I've always done, or am I going to make a choice about how I think and how I feel about it? That this is the whole teaching of Kama as far as the Buddha is concerned and the way that Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa has it. But the, uh, the Buddhist world, the Western Buddhist world, has a very Hindu idea of, of Kama. Kama Vipaka, or uh, in the sense of you've heard it like this. Um, if you do good action, you'll get good results. If you do a bad action, you'll get a bad results. Okay. Is that true yeah. or not? Okay, there's some it is mostly true on the surface, at least. But the problem is when they add a third line to that poem and the third line the is lines. no matter what. Or no matter what. Okay. No matter what, which is not true. That generally a good action will give a good result and a bad action will give a bad result. But who's to determine? Or how is it determined that an action is good? That in fact, the way that Western world looks in the sense of cause and effect, and I assume the Buddha did too, is just we determine that an act was good because of the results. 
you invest in the stock market and the stock goes up and you sell it, then that styling of that stock was a good move. But if you buy a stock and it goes down and you sell it, or even if while it's going down, you feel bad because you think that that was a bad move, giving a bad result. Well, mm -hmm. actually, it was the result that we were looking at. It was a bad result. We didn't know when we made that move or when we bought that stock, whether it was going to go up or not. It was just hope. In fact, we were starting with greed by buying that stock. And when, when it goes up, we think it was a good move. And when it goes down, we think it was a bad move. So was it a good move in the beginning? Good re and the way that it's stated is good action gives good results, but we don't even know what a good action is. We have to wait for the results to find out what the action was. But the action by itself is undetermined because we've got an idea of what we want to be the result. We've got a plan. We've got a hope. We hope the stock goes up. Then it was a good move and we don't want it to go down. And if it does, then it was a bad move. OK, there's another possibility with that. And that is, is that imagine that you're at a um, let us say a tournament, um, the World Series or um, uh, the Super uh, uh, Bowl or something like that, and the guy makes a touchdown, but no, the penalty goes on the flag. And half the people jump up and down and cheer. Oh, I'm so glad he threw that penalty flag. <laughs> yeah, that's a good example. That's a and really the good other example. team, the and other the half other is, crowd jump up is, and down and they hate that penalty. All right. So was yeah. that penalty, was that a good act or not? Not never mind whether it was correct or not. We're not asking about whether it was correct or whether it was true or whether it's of uh, the, the video. But tape. how is how does the result? What was the result relate to people? Oh. How do people interpret the result? Because that's mm -hmm. ultimately what is determining whether mm -hmm. people think think it's a good or bad action over time and that it just continues on. Exactly correct. All right. And so this the whole issue of comma then becomes quite an irrelevant teaching until we just until we go into it deeper that in fact we uh, the Buddha begins to teach then that there is mixed action like that flag that went down that's mixed. Also the buying of the stock that's a mixed action. But there is a fourth kind of action that's neither bright nor dark, it's not mixed, and in fact, it's neither one, that we can go around living our lives without expecting results. We can just be in the present moment and just let this be an action that is free from, that in fact, if, um, uh, if I am not wanting anything, then the actions that I have will not be in the greed of wanting anything, so uh, in general, I'm not hurting anyone, and if I um, am not expecting anything out of my actions like Tom Boone or giving a donation or uh, trying to help some organization to do something good, that I can just give them money because I like it and get my benefit right then and there, then I'm not operating out of that whole idea of comma and the results of comma because I'm getting the results right now that the comma and the result of comma is instant that it has a cause and effect relationship.
But that's what the Buddha was actually talking about, that he, he mentioned that specifically. So you're and, talking about a cause and effect kind of dance happening right now. Right in is, the present moment. Cause and effect is not okay. just happening right now, but it's happening so, trillions of times in a trillionth of a second. Okay, I, I get, yeah. That makes me think about something that I, uh, uh, just something that came to me one day. I, I just thought um, this process of spiritual development or enlightenment, it, it ultimately felt to me to, right to say that you're closer to a, a noun, or sorry, you're closer to a verb than a noun. And that, that's like you're losing that, that self, the, the, the self view and preservation. Exactly. And then you become this process and you're just kind of doing this dance and you get so uh, attuned to it that, yeah, the past, it's not even really in in consideration, neither is the future. It's just this is so immediate. And the more you're in that, yeah, the less less problems there are generally. I mean, right. you can have problems in that. In well, a, in a here's a way moment, of probably, but <laughs> if you're not watching where you're going. Yeah, but a way that you're ex oh, expressing it can be also expressed this way, that life is not a march. It's a waltz. Yeah, and when we think of it as a march, that means that we're going someplace. To where in a waltz, we're just having fun. We're just dancing around. Uh -huh. Yeah. But there really is no place to go. We're just having fun here. Yeah, I forget who it was, but someone asked a, a master from some tradition, uh, you know, what's what's the purpose of, of life or the, the spiritual path? And he says, he just says, to play. That's all I said. Mm -hmm. Um. One of the old Zen stories is that the young Zen monk comes into the hall where the old Zen master is sitting and says, Master, Master, are you meditating in order to become enlightened? The old master opened one eye and said, No, I'm just sitting here because I'm already enlightened. Just sitting here. That's the whole point of Zazen. There's no place to go, nothing to do, just sitting here. I watched a video uh, a couple weeks ago on Zazen, and there was a monk uh, getting interviewed, and he, he spoke about it, something his master had said and told him. He said, Zazen, good for nothing. <laughs> That's exactly right. It's very, very good, and what you get out of it is nothing. It's very good to yeah. get a whole bunch of nothing. <laughs> and it, yeah, a lot of it was getting around that goal idea. Mm -hmm. But he also was saying there's a certain koan element to it because you're still choosing to sit down. It's even only though a koan when there is confusion. That that's what the word koan actually is pointing at. Is here's a riddle for you to solve, and if you're confused, yeah. it takes a while. But if you if you hear it that way, you just like a Gordian knot. You just cut right through that. There's nothing to it. No. 
<laughs> the koans only exist when you don't know when you don't see it. Well, right. <laughs> yeah. So, um, there's also that Zen point about you're already enlightened. Just sit here. There's nothing to attain. Just sit here. Already enlightened. Okay. But what that means then is that when we want something, then our meditation practice is all about greed. We're practicing being greedy for something. We're practicing for being dissatisfied. Yeah. And so I know that's being satisfied. I know that's something you talked about with, yeah, the, especially, you know, the, like the four path model and that sets you up for that type right. of thing that well, chasing you get it and it that i experienced that you know because i had you know as far as the descriptions of, at the very least what daniel ingram calls stream entry i had fruition or cessation which is really the the way that uh, he determines that well and, he and comes then out I, of the history that, like, he comes that, out it makes go ahead it makes me feel like i you know okay, I got this, and things feel to be much better in a sense, and, and a sense of understanding and control and the feeling of everything and being present, whatever. But now it's like, I've got all these other people uh, who are these experts in Buddhism telling me, okay, there's all these higher levels, and you're here, and it, it doesn't matter how, how good that feels or doesn't, like, there's all this, and you got to go here. And that's kind of... And of course, like I've always been a kind of high achiever at, at, in some ways. Yeah, I base, I'll be honest, I, I'm like a high achiever as long as I can do the least work to get there. <laughs> that's, that's just my personality. And that's, well, that sounds like Western far too much to, work for me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that sounds like, well, I need, so what we can say then is all of these different things that people present as Buddhism wind up being just more doodads on the box. Or another way of saying it is, is that these are actually rabbit holes that people go down thinking that they can get they the box. They feel like a rabbit hole more than a doodad on the box. Mm -hmm. In my experience, it's a pretty... You go... I've been in... Uh, well, I would say in that sense, I've been a, a very active rabbit <laughs> um, for the past well, few months. Um, well, you've, you've seen the interior of a lot of rabbit holes. Now it's time to start taking a good look at the interior of your own mind. Yeah. And in the process of doing that, it's a cleaning out job. And that the only thing that you have to clean out is this particular unwholesome thought that you're having right now. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's the it's way. It's not it some giant personality consistency of I've got this condition and that condition, and this is happening in my life. It's no, this is right here. What is the direct problem? You mm -hmm. deal with that in the best way you can, and then you go to the next moment. And that seems very practical to me. And of well, course... That's what it is. It's a it's a practical uh, method of coming out of one's dissatisfaction in life. 
that this is in fact the whole four of the noble truths is that there is a procedure, a method of spending this moment to come out of uh, dukkha right now and become in a state of sukha, that sukha and dukkha are direct opposites. So the third noble truth is getting ourselves into a state of satisfaction, getting ourselves in a state of comfort, into a state of pleasure, into a state that feels safe, and secure and that's all we need to do and if we can do that over and over and over and over again we begin to build confidence that i can do this anytime i want to and with that confidence comes uh, an, an exhilaration of success i can do this what are your thoughts on like practices like vipassana for example like well The dry vipassana that is taught in Western Mahasi style is dry because they don't have any sukha. They do it with dukkha, and all they investigate is dukkha. So you could actually say that their teachings of the Buddha is dukkha, 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 more dukkha, look, look, look at it closely. There it is. Inspect it. Get some real detail about that dukkha and see how that dukkha creates this dukkha and then look at it for a while and get some dukkha there. Keep see, that never, that never yourself made sense with... to me. When I was doing Vipassana in their style, it, I could get no self rather easily. Notice no self and, and sensations. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's not too hard to see the consistency of that. Impermanence. Yeah, everything's changing all the time. It might last for five seconds, but in that five seconds, your attention's going to go to your the itch in your foot and the sound of the car outside and the thing up here, little itch in your head here. And when you're able to see all those jumps, you're like, well, that that solid little pain thing I was worried about just went away. But I noticed that when I was trying to examine Duca, uh the there it it didn't make sense in being a consistent thing all the time because you see okay there are times when i feel happiness sukha satisfied mm-hmm. and i'm trying to investigate this dukkha that's supposed to be here at 24 7 the way that it's but no described. i'm like i can't find that so fact, do i make it doesn't there in the suttas there's no concept of 24 7 but that's that's the way that they present it in in these well, Western that's Buddhist the contexts. Western mindset of everything is black or white. Better way of saying it is, is that there's a ratio. Sometimes you feel like a nut and sometimes you don't. If you start looking at that, you can feel like um, you don't have to feel like a nut if you don't want to. But you feel like a nut sometimes and sometimes you don't. And life's just a mix. It's up and down and up and down. And we're not. Um, uh cognizant of the upping and the downing all we're cognizant of is is that we don't like it when it goes down and we do like it when it goes up rather than recognizing that we're in a cycle of samsara and it keeps going up and going down and whether i like it or not is my choice Mm -hmm. and so uh the the Another way of uh, talking about the teaching is that we can actually define the teachings of the Buddha down to just one word in several cases. One would be choice. 
If you recognize in this particular instant, you have a choice about how you're going to spend this particular instant, then that can, and you remember that you have a choice. And in fact, you take the big choice that I can make the choice anytime I want to make the choice. Then that's the entire teaching of the Buddha. You got a choice about whether you're going to feel dissatisfied or not. That's a pretty liberating concept just in itself, put really simply in a way that you, I've not heard in all this other stuff I've been looking at. It's you've got a choice in how how you feel it's mm -hmm. that simple and you got that and you have that choice right now and that's always where you make the decision is in the right now right well you've always had the choice but we are so deeply ingrained in the habits that we've had that it's hard to recognize because we've made the same choice over and over again that we have a new choice to make and in fact, our choices that we've been making have turn out to be not choices. They wind up being habits. Mm -hmm. OK, we made those choices originally when in diapers and we still make the same choice over and over again because of habit. Now it's time to wake up and recognize that we don't have to make that same choice over and over again. We can choose to make a new choice. Every moment that we can remember to. This is what uh, Sati is in. Because now we're talking coming out of that uh, third noble truth into the fourth noble truth. And this is something that we're going to spend more time on in the sense of when we understand how the four noble truths work together, then we can see, ah, oh, this is how all of this works. And then we yeah. can go down into it. All right. And so um, the very first point about the uh, eightfold noble path is that this is a noble path, and yet it's almost always practiced in an ordinary way by ordinary people for a long time before they finally get the wisdom that it takes, that this is actually a path of wisdom. That is not a path of morality. It's not a path of concentration or meditation or anything. It's a path of wisdom. Okay. And this is where the and this is where the path starts is with wisdom and wisdom in the sense of investigation and in the sense of looking and looking. The Mahasi method calls this noting because they don't have all of the ingredients, but they do have that piece of the puzzle, the noting. The question is, is once you do note, when did you note? That's the next question. When do you note? The answer is every time you remember to note. But the Western person's answer is all the time, and they can't do that, so they're setting themselves up for failure. And so they're going to wind up in dissatisfaction when they have the idea of all the time, rather than doing it when you remember to do it. So that means that when you remember to do it, you can congratulate yourself for remembering, rather than fussing at yourself for forgetting. Westerners are already trained in that critical thinking of fussing at ourselves when we remember, because that means that we remember that we have forgotten and we fuss at ourselves for, for forgetting rather than congratulating ourselves for remembering. Yeah. Okay. And so noting. Um, to is, to note all, is to note, am I congratulating myself or am I punishing myself for having woken up in this instant? Okay. So do you call noting such as like Joseph Goldstein, I was listening, he was talking about, 
you know, he would, you know, put his foot down and he'd note that and then lift it up and note that and place it down and note that. Is that the kind of style? And is this happening is like you literally think like a thought in your head, like lift foot, middle motion of foot place foot because that's the way it, I've seen it presented in some places and then Daniel Ingram says that you can note without words if you're doing like fast noting I've seen a whole range of this kind of stuff in the okay. Western Buddhist mm -hmm. um, let us start at least with the point of the, the movement of the foot and that sort of thing comes out of a particular literature that's a thousand years after the time of the Buddha. It has its value, but it misses the point. Okay, it, it has its value. It is a way of uh, training the mind for sati. So that the how often we note can be improved. We, we want to improve the frequency of how often we note. We also want to improve the power of the of our noting in the sense, do we and this is where they're often missing. Do you have the power of the noting or the sati is strong enough to make a change? And yet what they're doing here is that the noting that we're doing is because you're changing the way that you're moving your foot. By noting it, you're changing it, but also by checking in a particular way that, in fact, the book is all about um, uh, uh, moving the heel first, going to the end step, then the rising of the foot, then the moving of the foot, then the planting of the foot with either the heel or the toe, and then letting the whole foot come down. Yes, all of that stuff does happen, and we can notice that. And then we can do that by starting off walking very, very slowly. And then we can begin to do that walking naturally. And yet in Western meditation, the idea is, oh, you've got to slow way down. You've got to slow way down and note and note and note and note, you see. And so they kind of miss the point in everything. But the real issue of the noting is, is that when, when we're noting what needs to be noted, we are noting it within the context of the body, within the context of the feeling, within the context of what is happening in the mind, and in the context of what the state of mind is. And so the whole Satipatthana is there, and um, this one little piece of it, of watching the foot, now has become what you understand about uh, the the sati or the waking up or uh, this whole practice. That in fact, that's just one example of many of the things that another one is, is that you can become mindful of your breathing. And uh, in this case, you're also going to slow it down so that the mindfulness actually is taking control, just like you're taking control of the way that you're walking and slowing it down and really watching every piece of the step. You're also going to learn to do that with your breathing. We're also going to learn to do that with the mind. And we're also going to learn to do that with our feelings. So it's not just the foot that we're going to note. That's just an example. Okay. Okay. Um, but another point about it is, is that this noting 
that the Mahasi method is actually talking about has to be done correctly when the mind is already in the right state of mind, when the mind is already fit for work. Now the question is, what are you going to note? The other way of practice is the dry insight method is, is what do you know? You note whatever is there. But the correct way of practice is, is that that's how we start, but in the, but we do it immediately, like a, a t something like a one second after we do that. The next thing we do after the noting is the determination, is this thought worth having or not? And and uh, sometimes it's worth having, and sometimes it's not. Sometimes you're having a relaxing, happy thought. Sometimes you're not. Check it out. Keep watching what the mind is doing. And when the mind is um, uh, thinking about something other than what's happening right here, right now, because the Western mind is trained to think about the past and think about the future, making plans and fixing problems and all of that kind of stuff. But a really good wholesome thought would be thoughts about what's happening right now. To be here now, ta ta ta. Those are wholesome thoughts. So, what kind of thoughts would be wholesome? Would be by watching your foot as it's moving. Another one would be watching your breath as it's breathing in and out. Another one would be uh, keeping the mind gladdened and bright and in the present moment. And so, it's not a matter of noting whatever is there but whether we're going to start controlling what we're noting. But this actually, um, Western Buddhism seems to be a no skin in the game kind of passive observer practice, a passive practice, to where the actual teaching of the Buddha is an active practice. You put skin in the game. You got to take control of things. If you're going to make some changes, you're going to have to make some changes. You're going to have to put some effort into it. And that right effort is the part to, that's one of the missing pieces of the puzzle is one's right effort. Yeah. All right. And the effort is, is to take out unwholesome thoughts and put wholesome thoughts in the mind. The first job that we need to do is remove the hindrances to remove the restless mind, to remove the worries from the mind, to remove all the doubts from the mind, to remove all of the duties of the mind, like I got to go do this and I got to go do that. Removing all of the desires of the mind. This is being free from the hindrances. And the way to do that is by paying attention to what you're doing on the outside and the reality right now. You're watching your foot is a whole much healthier thing to do than to uh, not be paying attention while you're thinking about the argument that you had with your Aunt Susie or something. Yeah. So we, so we begin to then pay attention to what's going on. And that's one of the things that we can pay attention to is how our foot moves. We can also pay attention to the hands, that that's in fact in, in the sutta also. That walking, standing, uh, reaching, touching, all of that kind of stuff is to become mindful. And one of the ways of becoming mindful of hands is again by intentionally slowing them down, that we don't just grab stuff. That we begin to move slowly, carefully, doing with our hands, directly mindfully what we're doing with them. 
So this is all part of the practice of to be here now with the body, the feelings, and the mind, and the mind's objects, the Satipatthana, the four foundations, Kaya Nupasana, Vedana Nupasana, Chitta Nupasana, and Dhamma Nupasana. Now, how do we get started with that? That's the question. Is it, well, it's actually a sequence of events that happen in the mind. A lot of people think that all the, the Satipatthana and Anapanasati's practice of the Satipatthana is a great big thing. And that I have to practice for years this, and then years that, and then years that other stuff to where in fact the whole body and mind feeling complex goes into the meditation hall with you. You can't leave the mind and the feelings in the bed and take the body in to the meditation hall. You've got to take it all in because we're going to operate with all of it within a few seconds of each other. There's kind of a sequence that we're going to go into, and this sequence is done according to the Eightfold Noble Path of investigating what's going on, remembering to investigate what's going on, most specifically the mind, and then we change the mind from an unwholesome thought to a wholesome thought, and then congratulate ourselves for changing it, or we congratulate ourselves for the fact that it was already a wholesome thought. But in both cases, we congratulate ourselves for the job well done. The mind in this thought is now in a wholesome state. One of the ways that I tell the students it is, is that you have spent your whole life talking yourself into feeling bad. And now it's time to talk yourself into feeling good. Yeah, I like that. This and, It's a lot, it's a much different approach. Uh, than than that that constant seeking i need to be this or that to be that ultimate happy level no it's so I, the this is the practice in avanapanasati is to remember sati to wake up and to look at what the mind is doing and then gladden the mind that's one's right effort is to gladden the mind perk the mind up there's many different ways to do this next time when you call we'll talk about the various ways of gladdening the mind and what are wholesome and unwholesome thoughts but probably pretty good at already you can determine whether a thought is wholesome or not if you inspect it if you see it and so um once we see that thought now we change it into a wholesome thought and the wholesome thought has to do with the fact that I do feel safe. I don't have to feel afraid. I can feel safe right now. It's not dangerous. I can have a wholesome thought if I'm comfortable. I don't have to sit long time before my knees hurt and my back hurts. And this is meditation kind of painful sitting postures. But rather maintain comfort. Make sure that you're comfortable. Because if you're not comfortable, you're not going to be able to be satisfied. If you don't feel safe and secure, you can't feel satisfied. So safety, security, and comfort are prerequisites for feeling satisfaction. And this, and this feeling of safety, security, comfort, and satisfaction is actually the technical definition of the word sukha, which is exactly opposite of the word dukkha, which is unsatisfactory. And now we're making the moment satisfying. We're making it satisfactory right this very moment with only three out of the eightfold noble path, only the first three, and we're already in the third noble truth. 
there's a path out of suffering and that's not necessarily by uh, viewing everything as suffering all the time <laughs> in the, okay. in the Duke of Vipassana <laughs> style. That's, that's another issue is the word path. Because when we hear the word path, we automatically think of it as a path or a way or a trail or a highway or a destination. Here to there. Here to there. In fact, just, that's just a bad translation of um, uh, of the word maga means uh, it means like method or a way of doing things. The example that I use is, is that there is a door and you want to go into the house. You want to open the door. There's a simple procedure. You put the key in, you turn the lock. You turn the handle and you push the door open. That's all there is to it. There's not much of desires and dissatisfactions in getting the door open if you can open it. Now, if you try to turn the key and it won't work, it's the wrong key or the door is stuck. Now you're in a state of dissatisfaction because you wanted to open the door and you can't. But if you know how to open the door, all you have to do is put the key in, turn the key, turn the crank, open the door, and there you are. This can happen in a second or two. And many people in the West get the idea that, yeah, that's all there is to to open that door. Unfortunately, that door is 100 miles from here. And so now there's a path to the door, where in fact the door is right here in front of you. Here it is. And all we have to do is unlock the door. All we have to do is come out of our uh, dissatisfactions and turn it immediately into satisfaction. The Buddha had a phrase for that. The phrase that he used, in fact, this is a very key ingredient into the way of him putting it all together, and it's a very famous phrase. And that is, aha, I see you, Myra. Which is basically saying, aha, I see the door is closed. And so all we have to do then, aha, I see you, Myra, is in fact, aha, I see you, Myra, is already coming out of it. That's a wholesome thought now. Yeah. Aha. I see you. Why? Because when we were in it, we were it. I was that thought. That was who I am. And now I can come out of it and say, aha, I see you. So it's like this, that there's the thought and there's the me attached to that thought. And then we wake up and we say, aha, I see you. We're putting some separation. We're becoming super mundane. We're now not in that world. We're above that world. Aha. I see you. This is the expression, and that takes us immediately out of dukkha. You're out. There you are. The next question, though, is what are you going to do in the next mind moment? Go back to this again. Are you going to have a dance? Ah, ha, 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 I'm out. I'm out. I see you. Da, 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 da. <laughs> Your choice. I, I know the, the dance sounds better to me. All right. Well, taking then, on the what what kind of sucks, right. you know. Take take a mental victory dance. That's the gladdening of the mind is taking a mental victory lap, and by doing so, you begin to change the way you feel. You literally talk yourself into feeling good. Aha! I see what I'm doing. Rather than oh, there it goes again. 
because that's the normal way. We see dukkha and then we just have more dukkha because we had dukkha that we remember that we forgot. And so now we're chastising ourselves for having forgotten instead of congratulating ourselves for remembering. Yeah. So this is the skill of sati. It's the right kind of sati is a wake-up call. Wakey, wakey. Aha, I see you. That's the practice. And this is just the, uh, the first thing we do. The next thing that we do is then we take a deep breath. That's also part of one's right effort. And now we begin to start breathing long and breathing out long intentionally because we're now putting sati, we're putting some skin in the game. If I try to note the breath without putting anything into it, I'm just going to pass or be watch it. The mind will just trot right away. Because it's got no skin in the game. It's got no reason to stay there. It's hard work to stay there when the mind is actually flipping out someplace. So becoming curious and interested in what's happening in this present moment will give the mind an opportunity to be here now. Curious and curiously inspecting what's happening right now. Yeah, I mean, at least like entering that for, you know, several seconds. That kind of meditation seems a, a hell of a lot easier and more effective than what I was trying to do before. Well, um, I've only added a couple of missing pieces. You already knew. Yeah, much really. Because what I was doing before was was you know still doing a lot of stuff i mean it was it wasn't you know it wasn't like a toy gun you were it was setting like a, yourself it was up like a musket or something and instead of a machine gun <laughs> well you basically you were by by being so excellent at spotting dukkha so excellent in the noting that all you begin to see is dukkha 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 everywhere but here we're taking exactly the opposite. Is as soon as we see the dukkha, we're throwing it out. As soon as we see the unwholesome thought, we're throwing it out and coming into the here now immediately and getting Im instant, immediate results. And we begin to like it. Yeah. But here we're liking something that we have rather than liking something that we want to have. Big difference. Big mm -hmm. difference. And so we become satisfied, but this present moment is good enough. This is what we need to practice, is practice that this is okay. What's happening right now is all right. Because if it's not all right, then that means that you're giving yourself a lot of work to do for nothing. <laughs> when you could just sit here and enjoy nothing at all. And so there's no place to go and nothing to do. And the spring comes and the grass grows by itself. Doesn't need our help. We can just sit here. Everything's okay. Everything's easy peasy. Everything is gushy. 
everything is warm and fuzzy and we begin to nurture ourselves. Everything's okay, everything's fine, not a care in the world, not a worry, no dangers, no expectations. And this present moment is just nice. And this is how we practice, just getting ourselves into a nice, happy state. And then learning to begin to maintain that, as well as building the skill of maintaining that, we're also building and maintaining and expanding the confidence that we have that we can do this. That this is my practice. It's satisfying. And with then becomes the attitude, I can do this. I can do Yeah, this. I mean, just just being on the call with you this far, I've gone from feeling like it meditation is like almost impossible and I'm gonna do all these other spiritual methods. And it's not to say that I'm gonna stop doing those now, but um I felt like I had to go everywhere else other than meditation because it was just something I couldn't handle. Like just sitting down and 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 being with it. I could do it for maybe, I don't know, 15, 30 minutes. The longer it goes, it just got worse and, and worse, usually. Because I what would happen is I would do, you know, like Vipassana or something, and I would get some type of positive result, and it would feel good. And mm-hmm. then, you know, for example, one thing, they're they're telling you to actively look at if a bliss sensation comes up which happens to me you know all the time if some big bliss sensation comes up or run, you know bliss running down your leg and you know the side of your body or in your head or whatever you look at it with this dukkha lens like i'm trying to see how this beautiful bliss right now that i'm experiencing is dissatisfactory because it's impermanent and then i'm automatically Looking into the future and the past to even have that impermanent thought to mm-hmm. tie in that it's going to be dissatisfactory. Because the truth of the thing is, it's not dissatisfactory in in that moment. The, the, the sensation of that, the natural way that that plays out is, dang, this feels pretty good. But when you get in that mindset of, I'm going to go at it and mm-hmm. and dismantle it so I can keep going this- further and further... Right. Um, the students, many of them work very hard. Their effort is strong, but it's not right and it's not noble. Other people don't work enough. And in fact, everybody is going back and forth on the seesaw between not enough effort and too much effort. Yeah. Um, instead of just the right effort every time, just just the easy right effort, just the minimal amount of effort to actually get the job done. That's one's right effort. And it's an easy thing to do. And that is just to take a deep breath and just change what you're thinking into wholesome thought. That's all there is to it. Now, one of the things that we know about humanity is, is that there's an attention span. And that um, uh, someday we can go into some, some of the details of it. But right now we can just look at the fact that, generally speaking, 20 minutes is about the attention span for humans. And then the mind gets tired. And that uh, the best 20 minutes of a class is the first 20 minutes. 
unless the teacher or the students are skilled enough to stay there for a whole hour, but for your four fourth graders or not. Yeah. So um, the meditation system then that came out of Burma was basically for people who were much more senior at it, and yet they begin beginners with sitting for an hour and none of them can do it. And they all wind up wasting most of that time in misery, suffering, and in fact, sitting in a posture that their body's not used to. And so they're in pain and discomfortable. I mean, it's just, it's a kind of a, um, a torture chamber. That's what it seemed like when I heard everybody's like these 10 day Vipassana retreats and stuff. And I'm just thinking, you know, I have ADHD and, you know, other stuff going on, but like if I would just picture myself, I was thinking realistically, like doing what I'm doing right now, if I go to this 10 day retreat or whatever, I'm going to, my attention's going to crack within like an hour and a half, almost guaranteed. I, I knew that about myself. And, and then and you're going to be unhappy myself, in a place where you went to be happy. Then you're going to be really unhappy. You're going to crack. I heard that word. Yeah, I was going to, I knew that I would crack okay. and it would be that, that that I would have to open my eyes or walk around or something that I, that sitting still in that posture and whatever in, mm. in in that way I would have to change that's always been what it was is that the meditation hasn't been um it just hasn't been enough to hold my attention usually except for a, after you know my my first cessation, there was a time when I meditated for about two days straight, like maybe eight, like one time a day, and then a few glasses of water. And that was basically it. And I was doing it because I was really enjoying the states that I was in and investigating them further. But um, I think it's really hard to to keep up with that if when you're not at i think a lot of that came because after the cessation or whatever it, it created a, a heightened kind of baseline state that i was in and then it made things right. it made the practice more more full of sukkah i would say and then precisely so yes exactly was, here's what happened i was able with that. i was able to just do it you know for I mean, way more than I ever could have in a two-day period before. I mean, it was all day, like both days. I was off work, everything, just laid on my couch and was just <laughs> just uh, relaxed as I could be. And and uh, just, it was well, great, but... but yeah, it, it was great. You hear that, that that was in the past, that this is one of the big dangers is, is that people will have after a whole lot of work. They'll yeah. finally let go, then have a good moment. And to now they uh, the next meditation time, they want that again. And yeah. so now they go into the meditation wanting something that they don't have. And so they're striving to get something they don't have. All right. There's a better way of practicing in the situation that that you're that you're in, and that that would be um, 
thinking about it in the sense that after a meditation retreat uh, at Yukawanka and I think others, they say uh, it's good to practice for an hour a day. And if you're really good at it, you can practice two. And if you're really, really good at it, you can practice three hours a day. All right, that's the way that they talk. And so all the students have this idea of an hour. But the Buddha didn't have clock. What he had was joss sticks or incense, which last about 20 minutes on average, at least the ones that are manufactured nowadays, which is about the same time as attention span. So what it would be better for you to do is just to start breaking your meditation up into smaller periods of time more frequently. So if you're going to put in 60 minutes a day, then we could do that in four 15-minute sessions, or maybe even better, six 10-minute sessions, because you ought to be able to get yourself into a great deal of nice place, very happy, in 10 minutes. And yeah. You can do that six times a day. You can get yourself into a really happy state. And you'll probably the- want to keep doing that. <laughs> Okay, so this is the way to to practice is to get yourself into a really good state often to get away from it all, close your eyes, get yourself into a nice, comfortable posture and start watching the mind, cleaning it out and start gladdening the mind and giving yourself some nurturing thoughts. Everything's okay right now. I don't have to do anything for the next eight or nine minutes. I don't go anywhere. I'm just going to sit here and chill. Just chill, baby, chill, relax, <laughs> easy going, no place to go and nothing to do. That that whole point about chill, baby, chill, is the actual definition of nibbana. And yet we have made it magical, like the word enlightenment or arahat or stream entry. We just put those things way up there with some plastic Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> Way up there with some place. Uh, that's true. I definitely did that. I definitely did that. And yet, Nibbana is nothing but just chilling out. Just cool off. Try in. Everything's all right. Everything's cool. Take the heat out of the mind, the unwholesome thoughts. And when you take the unwholesome hot thoughts out, then the body will naturally relax and cool, chill out. So this is the basic of, uh, or the understanding of it. The next time that you call, we'll go a little bit deeper and see how this actually fits into the Anapanasati Sutta and how it's to be practiced. But this is basically the idea is just sit down and remember to chill out. And then we'll get some unwholesome thoughts again in that 10 minutes. Never mind, I can chill, I can chill. And just keep chilling for about 10 minutes. Yeah. Become satisfied and content and safe and comfortable. And when you're really like that, then that's what you can do. I mean, that's what we could call chilling out. That's chilling. If you're unsatisfied or if you're afraid or if you're uncomfortable, that's not chilling out. (laughs) See, I've always been good at chilling out. I just never was good at meditation because I didn't realize it was chilling out. (laughs) Yeah, that's what meditation is. It's just learning how to chill out professionally, practice with skill. (laughs) Chill out professional chill. Yeah, I'm a professional professional chill chill master. (laughs) 
Okay. Well, I think that we've gotten enough now for for you to get a, a different idea and start practicing and adding these ingredients in and uh, breaking it up so that instead of sitting for long periods of time, you can sit for peri short periods of time and gain some real satisfaction out of it. Gain some real joy. Oh, I like this. And so practice that for a while and, and then you can call and we can continue on with some more of the details of it. But basically, it's the same thing over and over and over and over again. It needs that repetitive quality. As I said before, you have been literally for 20 more years now talking yourself over and over and over again into feeling bad. Yep. So now we have to repeat over and over and over again. To chill. Condition all of that. In a sense. Make that change. To remember to make that change. I don't have to be thinking about hot thoughts. I can think about chill thoughts. Well, uh, I I think that I mean that seems very helpful. Um, I can see it's probably going to make things a lot easier um to actually start well that's the whole point consistent. is making your life easy easy peasy why do you have to have so much work and hard and try and all that kind of language when we can just say yeah we got that yeah well is there anything else you want to say, or do you just want me to yeah. reach out maybe in a, I don't know, a week or two, or how long? Yeah, um, let us say a, uh, a half What's... a week to a week, something like that, three, four days, five days, that neighborhood, that'll be fine. Once okay. a week, be okay, up to you. <clears throat> All right, well. But the more um, you call, the more we'll repeat it, and the better your practice will be. The more often you call, the better your results. Well, I have no, no issue calling often right now. So, um, if you've got the time, I'll, I'll, I'll definitely fit it in there too. Well, we'll have to fit you in because that happens too. Sometimes we have two or three people calling. Yeah. And in fact, we have a um, several calls a week where we invite uh, anyone to come join it. Um, Multiple person. Yeah, it's called the Sangha, and we have a U.S. Sangha and a U.K. Sangha. Okay. And so you could join the U.K. Sangha. It's on Friday evenings. Um, you, you're in Central Time, and so that's... Uh, Eastern, actually, but... You, okay, yeah. you're in Eastern Time. Okay, so you're an hour ahead. Uh, if you're in Eastern Time, that would be 10 p.m. on on Friday night. And that's true so that people at seven in Pacific time. So Pacific is seven mountain. Is okay, eight. so 10 p.m. every Friday or? Every Friday, uh-huh. 10 p.m. every Friday. Um, and that's on? It's on, you, it's on Skype. It's on, on uh, Skype. a group okay. I didn't know you could. Uh, yeah, I guess you can do group on Skype. Okay, cool. They, um, they added that. Do I just send you a message at that time then? Just send no, you a message? No, you just joined the call. Okay, where where do I get the information? Well, for the 
just like in Skype, when you got me, you typed in the name. So here you type in T-H-E space S-A-N-G-H-A space U-S. Okay, the Sangha U.S. The Sangha U.S. But by U.S. with with periods or not? No, no periods. No periods. periods. Okay, the Sangha U.S. Okay. Nothing ever ends. We don't put any periods or stops or anything in there. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well. Um, And I can send you a link, but that's the easy way to find it. In fact, in in the descriptions, there should be a um, a link. In the description of the videos, do you know about the videos? I know about the videos, so there, I can. Have, there is a there is a YouTube channel, Damarato Dama. Yeah, I know of it. I know of it. Okay. So, so in all of those, or let us say the more recent videos, uh, it has Sangha links in the description of the videos. All right, well, um, that sounds good. Like at least two times a week that, you know, I can be exposed to more of this type of the Sangha. The Sangha is actually the other side of it, and that is making some, you could call it spiritual friends or Kalia Metta. I have really been trying to do that myself. Uh, I'm active on a a certain forum uh, where there there are a lot of seekers that go there. Um, they're mostly Western, so that's why we call them seekers, right? <laughs> but um, <laughs> but anyway, so well, you can join the seekers, or you can join the satisfiers. The satisfiers. <laughs> um, but I met some some good friends through there, uh, and. Um, so I've definitely been wanting to have more conversations with people who are willing to talk about this stuff. I love it. I, well, you know, invite them in. If you want, you can get them to call. Yeah, my friend uh, can probably join. Um, he's actually from the UK. It's kind of odd. But he can join the US and then. Well, you can join the UK because that's labeled right there in the description of all the videos, all yeah. the links. There's Twitter and there's, uh, I think there's a Facebook. I don't know about it. I mean, I've got some friends who are putting that stuff up. Yeah. So it's all it's all in the description. Sweet. Well, I think I've got my work cut out for me. So, well, I'll... you've got some. I didn't give you any work to do. You didn't I gave give you me some toys. I gave you some toys to play with. You gave me some toys to play with. <laughs> Be well, basically, with people, how you say things, right? <laughs> yes, yes. That's that's the way that I play. <laughs> as I listen. All right. Well, I appreciate it a lot, Brandon. Welcome. I'm glad to make friends with you. That's what this is all about, is friendship. Yeah. Well, it's it's what I've been looking for. My my uh, my community. We I used to go to heartfulness meditation. I don't know if you've heard of that tradition. I've heard the word. Um, 
So I would go to those meditations. And then when the pandemic hit, you know, the, the group just split up. And then, um, I don't know, I was really liking the in-person aspect of it, of going and being, you know, actually around people. And when it went to Zoom, I just kind of lost a lot of the, the zest that I had for it. Yes, I, it seems to me with Zoom that it always needs an additional piece of software, most likely to be emails, that nobody can do anything with Zoom alone. To where with Skype, with Skype, we can do everything with Skype. Yeah. But that uh, not only do we do the calls on the, the Sangha US and the Sangha UK, but also uh, people post things that they've seen uh, issues that they've got. It's just a community of noble friends. Yeah. So you can go and review some of the stuff that you've you've seen on the on the Skype list. When you finish Skype, you can go search for the Sangha. Yeah, I'll definitely do that. Okay, Brandon. We'll you, we'll see you in a few days then. All right. Well, I'll, I'll definitely keep in touch. Excellent. We made it to uh, two hours, so. All righty, well, we'll see you. All right, thanks.